Welcome to Street Smart Success, where real estate entrepreneurs share their backgrounds, experience, and lessons learned. This is Roger Becker, your host. Learn with me as I drill down with guests about their paths to success and what they're doing now. So today we have with us a man who has made enormous strides, is doing great things, following the breadcrumbs of the multifamily and student housing industry, and a man I've been very, very excited to speak to for uh, a bit of time here. He is the managing partner, CEO, co-founder of DB Capital Management. He is Brennan Degner coming to us from Denver, Colorado. Brennan, welcome to Street Smart Success. Thanks for having me, Roger. Good to see you. You got it. Yeah, you too. And uh, Brennan, before we get into the the cool real estate stuff that you've done and are doing, give me the Brennan Degner story pre-real estate. Sure. Uh, so I grew up in Denver, Colorado. Mm-hmm. I grew up a avid uh, basketball player. Obviously, I'm, I'm not standing up on camera, but I'm six six, so I think I, I naturally gravitated towards basketball. I was a big football player as well. Kind of selected basketball as the main route by the time I hit high school, and and I think that you know, kind of looking back at my roots, that's really where I get my you know competitive nature and my work ethic from. Was was really trying to become a, a D one basketball player. Either luckily or unluckily for me, that 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 didn't work out, um, and I kind of stumbled into uh, real estate. I went to the University of Arizona. At the time, I was about a junior. I was looking at going to go into law school. I wanted to be a sports agent, uh, so I was doing an undergrad in uh, uh, sports management and uh, grad in um, uh, political science. So, kind of the the law school to sports agent route was where I was uh, focusing on, and then. You know, as hokey as it sounds, telling the story now because I see how many people uh, were impacted by this book. I read Rich Dad Poor Dad when I was a junior in college, and like a light bulb kind of went off uh, that like this is actually what I want to do. This makes all the sense in the world. And so my junior year, kind of decided to try and focus on real estate. I I didn't really have any educational experience or any background or any internships, so. Uh, the path of least resistance I found at the time was uh, contacting the uh, guy who owned the duplex that I lived in, who I knew had owned a couple of other uh, duplexes in the area, and just asking if I could kind of mentor or be a mentee and uh, follow him around and shadow him and kind of learn learn what he did. And uh, and that worked out. And so that was you know my my real estate experience on my resume. So when I moved to Los Angeles. Uh, it kind of got my foot in the door on a uh, real estate uh, internship that then you know led to me getting an internship at MJW with uh, Mark Weinstein, who we, we uh, spoke about that you had uh, interviewed before. And then uh, you know my real my real training started then. So I, I uh, was initially hired as an intern. They were phasing out of uh, receivership and REO business, so this was kind of on the tail end of the. GFC uh, market built a very impressive counter cyclical business where he was, you know, doing well from an operating platform perspective by managing assets on behalf of the courts. And once the foreclosures occurred, the banks. Um, so my initial experience was kind of all asset workouts or distressed assets. And about three months into the job uh, as an intern, the team. Uh, overseeing really the operations real, like overnight left and started their own competitive business. And by that point, point in time, Mark and I connected. A lot of our initial connection was over uh, background in athletics. He was a, a very competitive, very um, well-renowned you know track athlete. And so I think we initially connected on just similar backgrounds in athletics. And he kind of took me aside and said, hey, either I can go you know, hire people who know what they're doing, or you can put in the work and kind of be my right-hand man and we'll work through this. And then I want to get back to what I really built my business on, which was acquiring assets. So we put together a plan. Again, this is like three months, so call it four months into the job now. And I oversaw the complete kind of liquidation of our receivership and REO business. And then in 2013, 
12, 13, uh, we started buying again and uh, we went on to buy while I was there, I think close to half a billion in multifamily and student housing, primarily student housing. And then to kind of round out the story, uh, when I was at University of Arizona, I became friends with, uh, who's my partner now, Devin Anton. Um, our third partner is his father, Robert Anton. Robert started uh, VCA Animal Hospitals back in the 80s. That eventually led to a, they were publicly traded, uh, Woof was their ticker symbol. And then the Mars family took them private in 2017. Uh, between 15 and 17, we started to, on the side as kind of some side projects, invest together. That grew. And at a certain juncture, called 2017, I had to I had to pick a lane and stay with it. And I was either kind of continuing to grow the MJW platform with Mark and our partner Adam at the time, or uh, focus on doing my own thing. And obviously, we're here today talking about the... Uh, the decision I made to uh, to focus and um, growing our own platform, and we've scaled to about three thousand units, um, about six hundred million of AUM across four or five states now. Got it. Explain to me what it means when you guys were in the receivership REO business. What exactly were you doing, and who were your clients? How did you make money, and you know what 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 exactly was that? Yeah. So to take a step back, you know. A receiver, and you'll probably start to see more of this these days because uh, it really is a counter-cyclical business. A receiver is technically it works for the court. In reality, you kind of work on behalf for the most part of the lender and in, in securing their the value of their asset. But it's basically to step into the shoes of an owner to ensure the value uh, or integrity of the asset or the collateral for the lender is protected through the foreclosure process. So it's in very distressed deals where the lender is concerned about misappropriation of funds or misuse of funds. You know, they're not getting paid their debt service. They want to make sure that you're not just taking the rents and putting every dollar in your pocket, not paying utilities, not keeping up with RM. So it's in highly distressed foreclosure scenarios where the lender will motion to the court and say, we're worried about the interest of our collateral. So we need to put in this called receiver in place to maintain and protect our asset while we work through the foreclosure process. So that's the receivership side of the business. And naturally from managing through that, you become close with lenders or develop good relationships with lenders. So it's kind of a natural progression that post foreclosure, they end up having you manage until they can liquidate the asset. So a lot of it is kind of high-level asset management over pools of assets that uh, lenders are trying to shed the debt or sell the debt at a discount to distressed buyers. Uh, so you kind of manage the assets through that process. Initially, we had intended to leverage that into more of a acquisitions focus. So, you know, the whole goal for Mark was not just to build a counter-cyclical business, but it was to get it was to get you know early access or or transparency over assets you could buy at a uh, uh, a great basis. What we found was in reality, most of the time a deal is either in receivership or it's REO because you don't want to buy it or you don't want to own it. So like you know, there's the saying like uh, deals. There's a there's a certain price for a deal where it'll make sense. Like a lot of times you're kind of taking over assets that I don't know if I would take take on if you paid me to just based on the liability and stuff like that. But we did see, you know, for some really skilled operators, some one-off case studies where, you know, they bought the note, they engaged us as a receiver, we protected their collateral, they, you know, they perfected their uh, security, they foreclosed on the asset, and then they turned it around and, uh, and, and had a really good case study with it. So there was that one-off uh, scenario, but for the most part, it was just, you know, kind of crappy assets that you don't really want to own to begin with. So it didn't really end up leading to much on the acquisition side, but it did give you kind of a uh, a very quick and dirty learning experience in what not to buy in real estate and what to stay away from. Wow. Okay. Well, but I get there's value in that. How would you guys get paid? Uh, so we, it's almost like you're a billable attorney on most receiverships. So it's either a fixed fee, like a a certain amount, uh, you get paid through property management fees. Given the 
distressed nature of the assets, a lot of times the lender would have to inject additional liquidity into the deal to get it through the foreclosure process. And that's typically where the funds came uh, through draws for you to get paid. So most of our receiverships, I would say 80% were, were on billable hours. So you can, you can make, you know, just like an attorney, you can make a, a pretty decent fee structure um, on, on those billable hours. And then the the balance were fixed fees where it would be, you know, $3,000 a month for our services. Once it got to REO, it was more of the fixed fee than uh, billable hours. So they kind of restructured once they once they actually owned the asset. And so were the, these properties were properties at the end of the day you didn't want to own because they were in bad neighborhoods? They were... Bad locations, bad physical asset, not... Not in the past. A lot of them were multifamily too. That that was, I think, one of the biggest takeaways. I think that's that's really why I focus on multifamily today, is because it was very rare we would take over like a good quality ass multifamily asset in a location that you would want to invest. It was more like dilapidated retail centers in the Inland Empire and and Phoenix and Vegas had a lot of. Uh, you know, industrial uh, or light industrial flex space and, and retail and office that we would take over. So it, to your point, a lot of it was just in locate. It was more location based. It was a lot of it was in locations that you wouldn't want to, uh, to own in. Like the only multifamily deals I remember, we've got some horror stories from them taking over were a handful of older, smaller properties in a portfolio. Those cross collateralized in South Central Los Angeles. Uh, kind of just south of USC, they were rough assets with a incredibly rough, rough tenant base. So um, not not a lot that you, it, you know, the basis still didn't make sense for the amount of headaches that you would inherit. So e- e- even at six six, you were still you still areas you were still scared. Oh yeah. <laughs> uh, you know, when you're you're taking over deals on like sixty seventh and South Central. Doesn't matter how how tall you are, uh, you're you're not intimidating to anyone there. In fact, in fact, you just stick out that much more. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> okay, all right. And so you ended up uh, doing stuff with a good friend from college. His his dad had capital. Yeah. And so, like maybe like what were the first first deal? Couple of deals yeah, you so started. The first handful of deals were all multifamily. Uh, they were all Los Angeles. I had to do deals that I could kind of, you know, uh, spend time on in the mornings, and the evenings, and the weekends. I was going to USC's Masters in Real Estate Development program at the time, um, and so I would I would be like underwriting new deals while I was in class, working during the day. So it had to be local, just from a pure time allocation perspective. Uh, first deal we ever did was an $860,000 nine-unit property in Pico Union, which is just off of downtown Los Angeles. It was built in 1912, if I remember correctly. You know, the rent roll when we bought it was like $6,000 uh, through, you know, tenant relocation, kind of cleaning up the property and stuff like that. We more than doubled the rent roll. And sold it for like one and a half or one and a quarter, or a couple, uh, you know, a year or two later, you know, did really well. And in that progression, so in the beginning, uh, Devin's family was the capital. So they were the LP, I was the GP. And we did about six of those deals where they were just smaller. Six to 15 units was the largest deal that we had done, that we did before we started raising outside capital. And they were traditional. 1950s and older value add rent controlled apartments. Uh, we kind of migrated to primarily doing West Hollywood and Santa Monica and did really well. I think that that era of investment is kind of over. I think, you know, tenants became much more attuned to what the true value of a buyout was and, you know, the ability to buy someone out for 10, 20 or less than $50,000 started to go away. And, you know, we started to see their people um, not wanting to relocate or asking for, you know, hundreds of thousands of dollars, which on some deals, it made sense, but it wasn't really morally the type of investment that we wanted to do long term, but it was a stepping stone to kind of build some track record in a location that we knew well, in a you know, a, a business plan that I was familiar with. So our first deal out of state was in Utah, in Salt Lake City, some market called Cottonwood Heights. Um, that was the first time we raised outside capital. 
Um, and we did exceptionally well on that. And we kind of, you know, we saw the benefits of a more pro-business, pro-landlord uh, environment. And so we, we built that into our thesis. So our thesis today is to target states that we feel like tend to lean um, more landlord friendly. I think Colorado is the closest one to being kind of right in the middle that we're in that have, you know, high growth secondary markets. And a lot of what we look for is a tech centric job force. You know, although it's been, you know, hit, hit as of recently um, with some layoffs and headline news and stuff like that, we see that as a good, strong indicator long term of good, uh, good incomes and a highly educated workforce. So, so every market that we're in to some degree has some sort of like Silicon designation to it, like Salt Lake City, Silicon Slopes, uh, Austin's uh, Silicon Hills and stuff like that. So we, we try and target markets that we feel like have long-term good fundamentals with good, highly educated workforces that we see through, um, through tech employment. I'll try and make a, a story really quick. I own five units in San Francisco. And the reason I bought the property, I bought the property in 2015. Yeah, 2015. And the reason I bought it is the rents were like, I don't remember for the whole building, probably about six grand, like you, yeah. you were talking about. And um, one guy was paying 900 a month, whereas the market for that would have been 4,500 yeah. at the time, maybe even higher. I mean, it was just, yeah. you know, and at one point he asked me to pay him 200 grand for a buyout. Yeah. Might have been 250. And I, and I was like, I would have paid him a hundred at that time. What? Cause I would have, sure. I would have recouped that in two years. And anyway, he was working with an attorney, this and that. And, um, I got to tell you, it didn't disappoint me when I sold it to somebody, the building, when I sold to somebody and that person, uh, got all the tenants out, paying them about 10 grand a piece because he threatened to, to repurpose the property into sure. non, into non rentals. He did in San Francisco. It's called an Ellis Act. Yeah, and this guy, they have that in, L, uh, in LA as well. Yeah. So it's, it's that it must be state. It's, and so, yeah. It's a state yeah. So he's probably lived to regret that he didn't take my hundred because he got 10. Yeah. And I would be lying to tell you, I feel particularly bad for him. When, when you said it morally, you didn't, I forget exactly how you put it, but it just wasn't, it didn't stack up for you morally. What, what, it, what, mean, what, it wasn't something that we wanted to build a scalable long-term business around. So, you know, I didn't want to be the one knocking on people's doors, you know, talking about relocation. A lot of times, you know, the people who are protected by rent control are generally ones who've been there a long, long time. Um, you know, to to what you're what you're saying, you know, we had tenants in Santa Monica who were paying six to eight hundred dollars for three bedrooms in uh, like on Eleventh Street. So you're eleven blocks in from the ocean or so. Um, you know. You're you're not you're, you're not even going to live in South Central for six six to nine hundred dollars a month. So, um, you know, we ended up having to be the ones knocking on people's doors and really changing their lives. And like, I don't always think that even with a uh, you know cash infusion, we you know we paid hundreds of thousands of dollars. Um, I don't know how far it goes, and it just wasn't something that we thought we wanted to build a you know, a larger operating business around uh, thematically. So, you know, we did well on our first few um, and then really saw kind of the writing on the wall of this is going to get much more challenging as tenants become more attuned and then the negotiations will become um, potentially much more heated because the success of your deal relies uh, uh, for the most part on whether or not you can execute those, those buyouts. And it just wasn't a, a, uh, a business plan that we wanted to be around long term. It's funny. When I had that property, uh, there's a guy that lives in the town I live in right across from San Francisco that said to me, I don't think you've really maximized you know, the value of that property you have. And, and really what it meant was doing what you're talking about. Yeah. I, I didn't have it in me to even begin a conversation like that. And, you know, I think morally, but if I want to be more truthful to the people that are listening to this and to you and, God, and me and to God and anybody else that, you know, is listening, 
it was more like I was probably more true as I was just scared I'd get sued or something like that. Sure. Um, it's not like the headline <laughs> risk that you have either. You don't want to be that that investor, you know, on the front page of the LA Times for uh, using scare tactics to get tenants out of your your building. Like it's it's just not worth the reputation risk and how that impacts you long term. So yeah, yeah, it's just it's just bad karma. Anyway. Uh, so we, we, we can move on. And so then you figured out, you know what, that that's not what you wanted to do. Your first deal was in Utah, yep. um, did well on it. So what, what's going on now? I mean, interest rates have gone crazy in the last year. Yep. The market has changed, um, from everything that I hear just doing this podcast and read. It seems like there's still a, uh, disconnect between what you know sellers are expecting and buyers are willing to pay. What's the state of the market? And in, in the sounds like you're in the mountain. Uh, yeah, we're in we're in Texas, Colorado, Utah, Nevada. Right, um, and then we have someone who covers Arizona as well, um, but we don't know anything in in Arizona right now or Phoenix. Um, so, from an operations perspective, things you know on a portfolio level are going very well. Uh, I would say. We, Kind of micro based. We saw Austin and San Antonio have uh, incredibly soft uh, leasing winners. I think that was more of a return to seasonality than anything else that we hadn't seen uh, in a couple of years because uh, we've seen a, a pretty significant snapback. Also, both have had a fair, fairly high or extremely high level of new supply enter the market that's going through an absorption cycle. Um, so I think we're we're starting to see the especially on our more workforce housing product, that in the rearview mirror. Um, so operationally, things are going very well. I, you know, I think rents have definitely leveled off, but we're still seeing demand and we're still seeing rents tick up. And most of what we own is suburban, moderate income housing. So some workforce, but mostly moderate. And that hasn't necessarily been heavily impacted yet. Uh, and I don't, I don't anticipate it being heavily impacted by... New supply, most of the markets were in, uh, new supply is heavily concentrated in kind of your CBD. So Salt Lake City, you know, of the, of the thousands and thousands of units that are being delivered, you could probably draw a one to three mile radius around where most of them are going up. So we've kind of stayed away from that. Same thing in Denver. For the most part, same thing in Austin, but it's a couple of different places. Um, so we've, we've kind of tried to thematically invest in more suburban areas where it's too expensive to uh, build garden style, but you're not necessarily getting the rents yet to go any other type of construction. And have, I think fared pretty well there. So operationally, things are looking good. Insurance has been a, uh, a huge issue for us. Uh, we actually have a deal that we're recapitalizing in Provo where the insurance, you know, our ability to execute on the insurance may make or break us closing the deal. That's supposed to close tomorrow, and uh, and property taxes have been much more aggressive, kind of portfolio wide. Whereas we're used to, you know, Texas, everyone knows you litigate every year. The jurisdiction comes out with you know massive increases, and you kind of litigate back down to try and be at you know between ninety and one hundred percent of your purchase price. It's becoming more consistent that that aggressive tax nature is consistent across you know, Colorado, Utah, our other markets. So, so that's been a challenge on the operations side, but, um, you know, we've, we've been working through it on the, on the pipeline side, uh, from, from a sales perspective, we're definitely seeing that bid ass spread, you know, we're, we're selling some assets that I think, you know, would have peaked so far into the money last year that we're still happy sellers today at, at prices we'll get, um, in, in the, event we go to market you know we get a bov we establish a minimum threshold that we like if the market reacts below that we'll really try and emphasize looking at a recapitalization as opposed to a sale most of the assets we own are really all of them are in great locations good long-term assets it might just need a fresh capital plan to uh to kind of realize that assets best best uh potential and so in cases where you know we hit a home run a year ago and we can get a double today and recapitalize it, stay in the deal, get you know deleverage and, uh, and and hold for another five years or so, kind of into what we think will be a uh, more positive point in the cycle. 
uh, we're trying to do that. So um, we still see some liquidity in our markets, like Austin is as an example. We're selling a portfolio right now. Um, you know, definitely peaked last year, but I'm I'm still relatively confident we'll we'll hit a number that we're excited about based on the uh, demand we've seen. But you know, I think the last report I saw was uh, transaction volume in the multifamily industry is down seventy percent year over year at this point. So, like anyone else, we're we have more time on our hands uh, than we typically do from a pipeline perspective. So we're we're starting to see that increase. You know, the last quarter was a significant increase over the first quarter, as far as the amount of LOIs or bids we were putting out. But it's still at you know historic lows for us. On some of the properties that you're debating, uh, you didn't use that term, but I'm using it, contemplating to sell versus refi. Maybe they're not at their peak, but they're still there'd still be, uh, like I said, maybe a double for you. When did you acquire those assets? Obviously different times for different assets, but generally. It's a mix. I mean, some of them were, some of them were looking at recapitalizing that we bought in 2022 already. So it really has more to do with the success of the business plan than timing. But I would say generally between 19 or 2019 and tw- early 2022. You know, we're, we're on the stuff we bought until we, we took a internal approach to start to delever late 21. I think we were a little late for, you know, hindsight's 2020. I wish, I wish the fourth quarter of 2021, we, we had our same set of lenses on leverage as we did, uh, first quarter of 22. Not, not that we were over levered, but, um, you know, we did have a, a handful of floating rate. Uh, loans at 75% of cost that um, aren't, aren't troubled, but create more cash management um, challenges. Uh, but in 22, we kind of started to migrate towards uh, banks away from debt funds. So most of what we closed in 22 was closer to 60 to 65% with with uh, regional banks. So so from a, a leverage perspective, we're in pretty good shape on those. And uh, and yeah, so depending on where they're at in their business plan, the size of them and stuff like that, um, the the positive that we're seeing is generally from a revenue perspective, um, we've been able to outperform our expectations and that's kind of offset interest rate challenges. But the interest rate challenges is definitely weighed down more than uh, um, than we could have, you know, projections. You... The deal in Utah was that to what year was that? The, the first, the we first one where you raised the last day of 2020. Uh, so called early 2021 was when we started executing the business plan. It was in Provo. Was it, it is in Provo, and uh, we just, uh, I mean, flawlessly executed on it. Uh, renovated half of the building in one year, the next, the following, and I think we beat our underwritten rent projections by 20 to 30 percent and you know i have a a very well located fully stabilized asset um, that again kind of came down on value uh still to a point that will provide exceptional returns to our current investors but also provide you know a good a good scenario for an incoming joint venture partner i see so your your niche, as you described it, is suburban. So you're not in central business districts competing with a lot of new construction per se, right. a lot of new supply. What's average vintage and and how big are the properties in terms of unit count, generally speaking? Yeah, I'd say the average vintage is mid 80s uh, across the portfolio. Um, we kind of draw a line in the sand at 1980. We've owned some stuff before. I think we had one or two assets in the portfolio that were built before 1980. But, um, you know, I think we're, especially with what's going on in the insurance markets, we're, we're kind of gravitating towards that being closer to the, you know, mid to late 90s um, at this point. But I would say the current vintage average is, is mid to late 80s. We really target... Uh, what we see is middle market opportunities. So 100, uh, 100 units on the low side to probably 300. I mean, we own we own some deals that are 350, 400 units plus. But I, I think where we are the most competitive is in kind of the 100, uh, 100, or 100 to 250 uh, unit space. What do you guys, I mean, roughly speaking, what do you guys put in per door and in the in the 
value add. Yeah, low, low end on the newer stuff, usually 10, 10 grand a door. Uh, high end on older projects, we've gone as high as 50 grand a door. I think we're probably on average 15 to 20,000 a unit is what we're seeing in renovation costs. We, we've, we've seen definitely an uptick in those over the past few years. Uh, you know, deals that we were doing a, you know, a standard level of renovation at, uh, at 12,000 are probably costing us 15 to 18,000 today. We've seen that level off a bit. The the biggest challenge we experienced wasn't necessarily price increases. It was uh, access to uh, to products. So we had a, a major issue getting appliances for a while during COVID, and then it was uh, it was appliances, and then it was like bath fixtures or something like that. There there were these waves of of just a, a complete shut off of uh, of product that would delay our renovations quite a bit. So. I'd say that impacted us over the last couple of years more than uh, price increases has. We I, one thing I didn't get into before is we own a uh, general contractor based in uh, Dallas, and we're able to kind of shelter some of that that cost change burden in that entity as opposed to on the deal level. So we'll sign a G max at closing, and so we're really able to protect our investors from that kind of stuff. We're still uh, executing on contracts we signed in early twenty one. Um, at the same prices, and you know the the GC just ends up making substantially less margin or kind of breaking even on deals like that, as opposed to hitting the investors with anything. Does the GC then? How does that work? Do they then have employees on the ground in yeah. in the different markets, and then also bring on subs, or or right. how does that yeah, work? So we don't really, there's not much that we self perform. There's some build back that we self perform, but. We're licensed all over the country. So generally we're every project that we have, every deal that we do is generally large enough that staffs a superintendent. So you have one superintendent that oversees the uh, renovation project, and then it's usually 95% subbed out and then a little bit of kind of self-performance on either unit build backs or installation or um, kind of random smaller items. But that allows us to kind of have consistency in reporting and billing and expectations across the entire portfolio. The guy I partnered with used to be with a company called United Renovations and he kind of helped help build that company. And they were bought by Katerra, which is a subsidiary of SoftBank. And so we've kind of created United 2.0, I like to say, uh, um, similar system, similar strategy and how we do things. And, uh, and it's worked out really well for us. So, so if there's a superintendent, right, overseeing the product, is that an employee of the GC? And then that, okay, I yeah, understand. Full-time employee of the GC that is on site every day, directing subs, making sure timelines are met, quality control, all that kind of stuff. They roll up to a uh, regional project manager um, who's really the one interfacing with us on a weekly basis or daily basis from a reporting perspective. And then we have a team of estimators, a back office. Uh, so I, I, the way we've set set up our companies is we're technically vertically integrated because we have an interest in all these, the property management firm and the uh, and the GC. Uh, but we've partnered with kind of experts instead of trying to build it from scratch ourselves. So we own a you know a controlling piece of that company, and then we own a piece of our property management firm too. And we've we've followed a similar structure. So from an employee perspective, you know we probably have. 100 plus employees across our portfolio. Uh, most of those are concentrated in the uh, the GC and the property management firm. Do those two firms have other clients outside of? They do. Yeah. Okay. Got it. So on, on peak, that's really how we uh, we control our own margins substantially. Is we kind of we 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 get a discount. We being DB gets a discount, and then on on true third party market deals, we that's where our margins made. Um, so we kind of keep the lights on and then they make money off of third party clients. And then same thing on the, the property management side. So the property management is a little bit different because we partnered with a much, much larger management firm. So they are, they have their own, uh, business. Their primary focus was student housing. And then we joint ventured with them, uh, specific to our portfolio and then anything we can grow within our portfolio from a third party perspective. So the it's really kind of a white label management company where we have dedicated resources from like a regional supervisor perspective, accounting perspective, all that kind of stuff. But we leverage their size and their back office for like HR, 
marketing, um, all that kind of stuff. At, at 3,000 units, we weren't necessarily big enough to really staff a in-house property management firm how we would like. And we don't really want to focus a ton on third party. We kind of will take on third party organically. So if we sell an asset and they want to retain us as manager, we will. But we're not currently actively trying to grow that third party business. Whereas on the construction side, we are more active in, in trying to uh, add more clients. Hmm. I'm going to take a step back. You had alluded to when we were talking about the bid ask and we were, you're starting to talk about it, but I don't remember where it wound up. What are you seeing prices like? Are, are you starting to see some give from sellers or how would you describe? A little bit. Uh, so we track very closely that bid ask spread. So we have a uh, pipeline worksheet where we among a lot of other things, as far as like the returns we're projecting and everything, we track what the broker's guidance is or what the seller's expectations are. We track where we're valuing a deal. So after we underwrite it and we solve to a certain return, what valuation are we coming up with? And this is the data point that's a little bit uh, harder to come by because not a lot is closing currently, but we also track what is something actually moving forward with as far as contract value and closing at. So between, uh, and that helps us kind of gauge, are, are we off? Is the market off? And is the market starting to come, come down or kind of what, what is the data telling us about what the, what valuations are doing? And what we're seeing is that we're generally 10 to 15% off of ask. So off of broker's guidance, uh, seller's guidance with where, uh, we're solving to in the deals that are moving forward. Those are pro, those are we're probably five to eight percent on average off. So deals are getting done moving forward, but you know they're probably two hundred to five hundred basis points short of where guidance expectations are. So the ones that are let's say ten to fifteen off, what are those prices compared to a year ago? Oh, uh, that's a great question. Probably twenty, twenty to twenty to thirty percent at this point from peak pricing. Wow. Yeah. I mean, there's. I mean. Think of, if you think about it, cap rates in most of our markets have, have blown out at least 100 basis points, if not more. So, uh, you know, there's ma- massive devaluation. I, I look, the, the revenue side has been, has been great, but it's, it's been tough to offset that, uh, that, that cap rate expansion. Yep. Okay. Well, it's going to be another interesting next six to call it 36 months or 24 months. Yeah, um, we're, we're pretty bullish on, on buying opportunities. If you look out, you know, a 36 month time horizon, I don't, I don't know that we get there until the market really starts to feel a little bit more pain from the prolonged higher interest rate environment. But, you know, we're, we're actively raising discretionary capital and, and trying to kind of build the, uh, dry powder and war chest because we see a, uh, an opportunity on the horizon. You know, we're, we're obviously not the only ones, you know, Blackstone rose, uh, raised their, their largest $30 billion fund ever with a similar strategy. Obviously they play in a different sandbox than we do. Um, but similar strategy, we're trying to build as much drug powder as we can because we think there's going to be a, uh, a tremendous buying opportunity here coming up. I read that, um, or heard 40% of people that got floating debt in the last, you know, three years, I might be, I might be a little bit off on that is not going to get refinanced. Oh, I, I, I believe that. I mean, the difference between refinance and recap, I think that safety measure is that you've had revenue grow enough that you can on a lot of deals with floating rate debt, you have the ability to potentially recap your existing investors out at, you know, your 2021 basis, even though you've grown revenue by, you know, potentially 20%. Uh, but yeah, I, I, I don't, that doesn't shock me at all. The deleveraging that's going to happen over the next couple of years, I think is going to be pretty, uh, pretty severe. Because a lot of them, a lot, a lot of the operators don't have the same story of revenue growth. A lot of them. Yeah. Yep. You, you know, you saw one of, one of the opportunities we, we are starting to see is that story where, you know, maybe a merchant builder um, took on a floating rate bridge bridge loan to kind of stabilize their lease up strategy, but they don't necessarily have an additional value add component baked in. That that's going to be really challenging to uh, 
uh, to refi. A lot of the stuff in our portfolio, it's more of like, instead of being able to do a, a cash out refi, you're doing a cash neutral, or maybe you have some, you know, uh, rescue prep equity that kind of fills the gap. Um, but you're, you're, you know, living to fight another day. I think, uh, in, in a lot of those other scenarios where you don't have that revenue story, um, you know, you, you could be facing a, a capital call of 50% just to get a, a, a refinance done. Yeah. And that's, that's not fun. Are you taking on any, uh, rescue capital prep equity for any of your properties? I mean, there's, there's some stuff in our portfolio where we have expiring caps where, you know, we might do, uh, a lot of times what we'll, what we've been talking about internally doing is, is offering up because it's a small amount relative to the initial equity. Let's say you have to buy a cap extension or something and it's a million or two million dollars and you didn't project that. What we'll do is we'll structure a new SPV and we'll let the existing investors have kind of a first crack at funding that SPV with a higher current pay. Uh, so basically using the investors that do want to double down or put more money in and get maybe some current yield to uh, um, to insert themselves into the capital stack. But we're in that exploratory phase of, of where that's going to shake out. Like I said, most of what we bought in 22, uh, which is where I think the the biggest kind of disc or disparity between what your value, where values peaked and, and uh, uh, interest rates started to come up. Uh, most of that we have either fixed through swaps or uh, agency type financing on. So most of what we're going to be looking at is, you know, rate cap purchases or, uh, you know, smaller uh, capital calls to do a cash neutral refi. In a scenario where you give your investors first crack at, at participating in PREF, so would they would they effectively have like two different tranches of an investment in a property? Got yeah. it. And so, and so they might get I don't know what what kind of yield could they get on the most, on the yeah most pref equity right now is I, I, there's I think there's going to be a little bit of a race to the bottom on the pref, pref equity side because it's like every equity shop has decided they want to be rescue pref and that's why we've looked at this is like if you can get you know ten to twelve percent returns for your investors uh, why go why go out and get you know for for that small of a, a sliver of equity um, why go open that up to uh, a different shop. But that's, I would say right now we're in the beginning phases of seeing that, but on the low end, I think in a total accrued, uh, would probably be 10 on the high end of what I've been seeing quoted. You get, you know, common equity like returns of 15, 16. Um, so I don't, I don't think we would consider that, but anything in that kind of 10 to, 10 to 12 percent range is, is where, where we would see probably, you know, it'd be a creative. Um, and then, uh, like I said, offer it up first to existing investors to the extent they want to fill that gap. And if not, you go to market. But uh, yeah, it's the it's the more highly leveraged deals where you're starting to talk about, you know, uh, five to 10 percent buy down on a pref piece there. That that's tough to pencil right now with where pref rates are. OK, so to be overly simplistic here, you know, when a property takes on pref equity, you know, kind of it pushes the common equity down the stack, right? So they've sure. got a not not a great thing if you're common equity because you have to you're looking at a distinct possibility of your IRR being less and it and it taking longer to to have access to your capital. Is that yeah. correct? To some degree, I mean, if they're not getting pushed down the stack too much because you're replacing you're basically replacing debt with preferred equity. And to some extent, they kind of function similarly. So the what what you really look at from like, is it accretive or not, is the blended cost of capital between your between your first trustee and the pref. And that's where, to your point, it's it's dilutive right now because, you know, rates on the first are going to be in the high fives, low sixes. And then your pref piece is going to probably be in the 10 to 12 percent range. So blended, depending on you know, where your first is sizing to, it's not super attractive on a deal that you financed at, you know, 4% initially um, with a blended cost of capital in the high sixes to the low sevens. Yeah, I, I get it. I get it. I get it. I'm I'm watching a, a, one of those movies as we speak, being in the wrong, being in the wrong seat. Um, so, so you, you, um, you know, in your bio, you talked a little bit about the importance of walking assets and I thought that was really interesting. So may, maybe, maybe give some color on that. Yeah. I mean, look, it's, 
it, we we obviously invest in the physical universe and in, in, in being real estate. And I think where we can differentiate ourselves and kind of where you grow up in the business is understanding the headaches and costs that are associated with uh, with you know what you might not see as signals early on in your career that you start to pick up on as you've been through deal after deal after deal, especially in the vintage that we we play in. So things like you know how how many how many tenants are occupying units or stuff that we would really look closely at because obviously the rent roll tells one story, but your physical occupancy in terms of how many people are flushing toilets and you know taking showers and stuff like that can oftentimes in these deals tell an entirely different story. And there's cues you can pick up on when when walking assets. I mean, obviously on the physical side, to be able to put your eyes on, you know, is the siding delaminating and deteriorating? Is the roof in bad shape? You kind of learn that over time. But the devil's in the details on these projects. And especially over the last few years where you really had to execute perfectly to do well because of how much competition there is in our space. Um, you know, starting by not really even bidding or coming up with a value on a deal um, before we walk it and before we spend some time on it and walk the neighborhood and stuff like that is really important. I mean, even on the deal that we've owned that we're recapitalizing with a new joint venture partner in Provo that I mentioned, we still walk the asset multiple times with them and without them. We walked the leasing path. We walked the, it's close to BYU. We walked the route to the school. We walked the route to the neighboring retail and just got a feel for the neighborhood. Um, so it's, it's, it's something that's super important to do because, uh, it's really, uh, you know, what can make or break your, your, uh, transaction. When you said, uh, rent roll versus physical occupancy, are you saying, you know, are you saying somebody, the rent roll might show that, you know, Bob Jones lives in X apartment, but there actually is nobody living in that apartment. No, it would be kind of the opposite end of that spectrum where the rent roll says that just Bob Jones lives there, but it's Bob Jones, his cousins, his brother, and, you know, all of their extended family members also <laughs> are occupying the space as, as well as, as more of the Especially like in the in the workforce or moderate income space, that becomes much much more prevalent. Uh, I mean, for for obvious reasons that that you know you can uh, split a two bedroom, you put you know two beds in each room, and, and you start to stack up, and it becomes a much more affordable option. But there's there's cost implications to that as an owner that you just have to know and you have to underwrite too. And, you, you know, to some extent want to uh, clean up as an owner. I see. Okay. Very, very interesting. So, so what would you say, Brennan, you're clearly a smart guy and you know, a lot of stuff. Uh, what, what would you say, I guess, are key lessons you've learned? Yeah. On that note, I think the, the further I go in my career, the more I realize I don't know. But, you know, looking back on our wins and our losses, the, the biggest, learning experience we've had is a know your partners before you do deals with them. I, I would say our most expensive learning experiences have actually been, you know, gains that we didn't realize because um, of misalignment with, with partners. And, you know, the second would be leverage, uh, you know, real estate's an industry that really, you know, lives and dies on leverage. Um, and to the extent that, you know, the learning experience that we're seeing right now is I think we made the right choices early on as, as we saw the, uh, the market start to get overly frothy. Um, and what was pushing that was leverage. And so to kind of stick to a hard cap, we like 65% of cost as like our, our total, uh, you know, total exposure at this point with what we've seen. So I think just, just being very, cognizant of what you're doing with leverage is is what makes or breaks in, in real estate in, in our industry you know longevity or the ability to live through these cycles is what ultimately makes or breaks you as an operator and so by applying moderate leverage you just increase the likelihood of of navigating through cycles like what we're seeing right now exponentially we've been jawboning for close to an hour but i still have to ask you this question 
what does student housing look like? And that's probably a, a, a not a short answer, but I'm going to ask it anyway. Yeah, I, I, I can make it pretty short. I, I haven't invested in student housing since I went off on my own. That was really, we, I mean, the deal in Provo is kind of a hybrid. I think student housing is a very attractive asset class for the right markets. Uh, I think the challenge we're going to see is which markets are the right markets to be in. Uh, you know, something we always followed closely, uh, obviously the environment around not just colleges in general, but going to college as a, you know, culturally, I think is changing and, uh, and how that impacts the, the built environment and the student housing environment, uh, is going to be interesting to see. I think that. In the right locations, at the right basis, with the right business plan, uh, student housing is very attractive. But what I think happened over the last 10 years is so much institutional capital kind of flooded the space that it became kind of dilutive to the risk that you take to own and operate student housing. It's much, much more challenging to, in my opinion, to operate a student deal than a conventional deal. It's this constant kind of circular reference of chasing where your rents are going to start and stop at from a leasing perspective and then turning, you know, sometimes 90% of the building and then doing it all over again. So the cyclicality of it is much more, much more like instantaneous. Like you can go from a good leasing season to a bad leasing season and the value of your property can just skyrocket and go down. So it's much more volatile. So I like you know, I like student housing for the right operators. I think our partner, our management partner, Redstone, really knows it well. So I think they can do well in the space. But I think for people who don't have a lot of experience in it already, it's 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 a challenging time to get involved. Mm. Well put. Okay, Brennan, how does one get a hold of you to engage, find out more about what you're doing, invest, et cetera, et cetera? Easiest uh, way to go is go to our website um, and uh, you'll find my email. Uh, shoot me a link and uh, uh, we can connect. And uh, uh, my my phone number is on there as well. So happy to have a conversation with anyone interested in um, you know, our platform or, or potentially investing or just sharing notes on, uh, on different markets. Got it. Brennan, this has been a fantastic conversation. As far as I'm concerned, I look forward to doing it again. Likewise. Thanks, Roger. And talk to you soon. Talk to you soon.